Thanks, Austin. Hi, everyone. My name is Ming. I'm one of the pastors here at Uni Church. It's great to be here with you all. If this is your first time here, an especially warm welcome to you. If this is your second time here, maybe you came back from last week. Really glad we haven't scared you off as we jump into Revelation. Now, it was really cool last week getting to look through the connect cards and prayer points and getting to know some of, uh, some of the challenges and things that are happening in the life of Uni Church. But one of the things I love about Uni Church is that we don't just get connect cards to ask your questions. Our regular practice is to ask questions throughout the sermon. And so a number's going to come up on the screen, and we're going to have question time after. So I invite you to flick them there. I hope I can answer them. Uh, It can be a little bit scary as we go through the book of Revelation, but it's going to be a good time. Uh, So as we jump in, why don't we pray uh, and and dig in. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you that you speak the truth to us, uh, that your word is sharper than a double-edged sword that it cuts through our hearts and helps us to see where we need to be spoken into. Uh, And so we do pray that as we look into Revelation now, we'll go into chapter 2, and we ask that we do hear what your word by your spirit has to say to us. Uh, Give us ears to listen, help us to set aside our concerns, and to give you our attention tonight. Uh, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What issues or assumptions or expectations do you have of the idea of church? Maybe you're here, you're not yet a Christian, and you hate the idea of organizations, institutions, and God all mixed together. Maybe you're someone who's been hurt in the past by a church and think that the people there are always so fake and they're hypocrites. Maybe you're someone who expects a welcoming, friendly bunch of people who'll spend time with you and where you're going to find your next best friend. Maybe you're unhappy with church. You wish we did more of this or less of that. What are your expectations of church? Well, I want to put it to you that our first expectation ought to be there is no such thing as the perfect church, or at least not until Jesus returns. Now, I don't know if that statement surprises you. Maybe it doesn't surprise you. But the reality is there is no such thing as the perfect church. Most churches have wonderful strengths, but every church has problems. Now, the church I went to back in Bible college last year used to run welcome lunches for people wanting to join them or thinking about joining them. And I remember the senior minister used to always say, I went along to these lunches, and he used to say, if you ever find the perfect church, don't join it, because you'll end up ruining it for the only other person there. (laughs) And that's the thing, isn't it? As long as you have more than one other person together in church, You are bringing together broken, imperfect people. People are going to hurt each other and let one another down. Yes, churches are made up of people wanting to learn about, live, and love Jesus, but they are still made up of broken, imperfect sinners all the same. This past week, the staff team invited a church health organization to review our church, to review Uni Church here. And they point out all sorts of things about our church, areas of strength, areas that we're doing really well in. But at the same time, they also point out growth areas, areas of weakness or things that we might have dropped the ball on. Now, I want you to imagine, what if it was Jesus, not this random church health organization, what if it was Jesus who came into that review of us here? That God personally shared his report card of Auckland EV of Uni Church. I wonder what he'd say. Well, that's what chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are for these seven very real churches. 
Back at around 90 AD, in the area we would now call Turkey, Jesus personally shared his review of these seven churches. Which means, in, in one sense, these chapters aren't for us. Here, for just a few verses each, these seven churches get their specific challenges and specific encouragements. But the thing is, they're actually very relevant and they're written for all churches. And what we'll see over the next few weeks, these churches were in real cities and they were really affected by the cities they lived in. And while times change, culture changes, geography changes, the issue facing churches and Christians back then are the same issues facing Christians today. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, verse 11, verse 29, all the way into chapter 3, each letter ends with this exact same line. It's up on the screen. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice there was a plural. There was an expectation that what was written to each church specifically would also be read by the other churches. It's almost like these letters were, were an email with all the other churches cc'd in. For anyone needing the encouragement to persevere, those people would hear that too. And for anyone who needed the challenge to hear, they would also hear that. Now all this to say, my hope is that as we look through these letters together, as we work our way through Revelation, we would be encouraged and challenged as well. Encouraged to stand firm for Jesus and challenged as we find areas in our life where we're not living for Jesus. All right, so let's get into it. Now, if you'd like an outline to hang things off, you'll see you've got a blank outline. There are just two points today. We'll be looking at the church in Ephesus and the church in Pergamum. So just focusing on those two. We'll cover the others in the coming weeks. But today, we're going to look at the positives and negatives of each. So we'll, we'll go through that, and we'll pull some threads together. Okay, so come with me to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, up on the screen. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right, so each letter begins with part of the picture of Jesus that we saw last week in chapter one. Why do you think that is? Well, like we saw last week, it's so that we and the churches remember just who it is who's speaking here. These letters have some real hard words to say. So they need to know that they come from Jesus, who is Lord of the universe, that they come from God himself, and they're not just some random's opinion. This isn't baby in a manger Jesus who's speaking here. This isn't Jesus who's just my mate. No, this is the awesome, glowing white, sword coming out of his mouth, Lord of the universe Jesus. And so I want to make sure that we realize this isn't just someone's opinion speaking, but these are the true and powerful words of Jesus himself. Now, Ephesus was actually a lot like Auckland here. It was the big city of the region. It was important. It was influential, but it wasn't the capital city. It also happened to be a port city, a place of trade and commerce. We can learn lots about the church in Ephesus in the book of Acts or in the letter to Ephesians that we just looked at last term. But here in Revelation... What do you think Jesus has to say about the church in this city? Well, first, let's look at the positives. So come with me from verse 2. I know your works, your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. Firstly, Jesus commends their hard work and labor. Ephesus was a busy church. 
They worked hard in serving their Lord Jesus. And to put this in modern terms, they studied the Bible with people. They went along to their connect groups. They signed up to sharpen up. They worked hard at preaching. They worked hard at preaching faithfully. They showed up to church early. They left church late. They didn't need a barbecue or ramen to remember to help them do that. They served on pack and save, helped out with explaining Christianity. This was a hard-working church. Jesus loves Christians who use their lives well for his glory. Earlier this year, we ran at Clubs Expo, Clubs Expo Semester 1 a campaign for uni church called Don't Waste Your Life. And as part of that campaign, we gave away the e-book by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Life. You know, it's a great book. I don't actually know how many students read it, uh, but it's big challenges. Are you building your life around what's going to last? How are you going to use your life for the glory of Jesus? Don't get to the end of your life and stand before God and saying, oh, gee, sorry, God, I just got distracted. Don't look back at your nice house, nice car, nice holidays, and realize I've wasted that 60 70, 80 years that I was given. So many of us, myself included, will say, I just don't have time. But the real question we need to be asking is, where are we making the time? Well, that is not the question the Ephesians would have had any problem answering, right? They were a hardworking church. And even more than that, they were a persevering church. So verse 3 expands on this. Have a look up on the screen. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. They got on with hard work despite opposition, despite setbacks. They didn't give up when things got tough, when things got busy. They didn't get all introspective and say, oh, why is God letting this happen to us? They didn't get weary of serving their Lord. Now, we don't know what exactly these setbacks might have been, for the Ephesians, but we see in the other letters in this region that the churches in this area were really copying it for trusting in Jesus. You know, some of these other churches had people being thrown into jail. Others were being put to death, like we'll see in Pergamum a little later. But even with all this going on, the church in Ephesus, they did not give up following Jesus. Do you think Jesus would look at us here at Uni Church and would commend us the same way? that he'd commend us for our service to him and perseverance despite setbacks. You know, as I was reflecting on this past year as I was writing for this talk and, I've, and, and looked at all that we've gone through, I really do see a church that is hardworking and has really had to endure. You know, we've had to move locations back and forth, online, engineering, OGGB, upstairs, downstairs. We sent 80 beloved brothers and sisters in Christ to plant another church in the North Shore. We sent them away. We've had to reschedule baptisms here at Uni Church because the uni, because the uni wasn't okay with it. Over in the North Shore at our church plant, I don't know if you've realized, but they've had to move locations five times in the last three months. And despite all these setbacks, we've kept gathering, we've kept loving one another, and we've continued to serve our Lord Jesus. Now, there might be some of us here who this isn't true for. Maybe you've grown wary. Maybe you aren't yet on board with what we're doing here. I want to say, don't waste your life. 
We have a loving and worthy king who has first served us, died for us, and in whom we can find rest. So come to Jesus and find joy in him. But what else does Jesus commend Ephesus for? Well, the third thing, and you might have noticed it, is, is their commitment to sound teaching. So have a look again at verse 2 up on the screen. I know your works, your labor and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. When it says you cannot tolerate evil people, you know, it could be referring to sin or, or morality, and that's something I'm sure they did call out, but I think it's more talking about not tolerating false teaching because there is nothing more evil than leading people away from Jesus, than leading people away from the gospel. And so here in Ephesus, when people came claiming to be apostles, came claiming to teach what the apostles taught, this church tested it. And again, to put it in modern terms, they were a church that sat there with their Bibles open. When they listened to a sermon, when they heard some teaching on a podcast, when they read an article on the internet, they would say, mm, not so sure that that teaching, that ideology, that application really sticks true to what Jesus says, to what the apostles say, and from what, can I, what I can see from the Old and New Testament. They tested everything against the actual words of Jesus and the apostles. You know, this is only getting harder and harder and harder. Our senior pastor, Rowan, works really hard to guard what gets said up front here. I hope he's okay with what I've just said so far. He wants to make sure that everything that's taught here at Uni Church is faithful and biblical. And that used to be enough, enough to protect people from false teaching. But nowadays, and increasingly so, you can just listen to teachers from all over the world on the internet. And often it's great. You know, there's some fantastic preachers who really do enrich our lives and point us to Jesus and point us to the Bible. But just because someone says they're a Christian, it doesn't always make them worth listening to. And I don't mean that you know, they might be dull or boring to listen to, but it's because what they're teaching will lead you away from the gospel and lead you away from Jesus. It's why part of our job as pastors is to preach against false teaching. And this can be very unfashionable in an age where tolerance is so loved and held as a value. People have said to me, why do you have to be such a hater? Why can't you just look at the positives? Why do you have to point out the errors? The reason is Jesus does it, and he commands us to as well. Where people are making false claims or denying gospel truths, we need to refute them because people's eternities are at stake. What you believe matters more than anything. But here's the thing. You are responsible for what you hear and what you believe. You have to test what you hear. You have to be careful with what you read. Jesus commended this in Ephesus, and I pray that he would commend it in our church. And the best antidote for false teaching is to know your Bible so well that you can spot it 100 miles away. See, you don't know false teaching unless you know the truth. And to know the truth is to know your Bible well. 
Maybe this semester, and this is serious, committing to something like Sharpen Up is just what you need. All right, so those are the positives. What about the negatives? So have a look with me at verse 4. It's up on the screen. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's their big issue? They've lost their first love. And this is serious. Jesus is talking about removing their lampstand. And what he means by that is that they are in danger of no longer being a Christian church, no longer being a church that belongs to Jesus. Did you know there are many churches and denominations in our world today, in Auckland, that have no lampstand? They're called churches here on earth, but they have no lampstand because they've turned away from Jesus and turned away from the Bible. And that's a, that's a warning here, and that's the warning here for the Ephesians. They may have had some real strengths, but this is more than just a growth area. This is a terminal issue. So what is this first love that they've lost? Well, what's the Christian's first love? It's Jesus. A personal, true, real love and joy for Jesus. It seems that the Ephesians have fallen in what you might call dead orthodoxy. They were 100% right, but 100% dead. And isn't that a danger for us all? Where we can be so caught up in making sure our theology is right that we lose sight of a personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, we can explain the doctrine of predestination. We can use big words like penal substitutionary atonement or transubstantiation, but we don't know our Lord and Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Where we can be so caught up in the busyness of serving, we can lose sight of our joy in the gospel. When we can be so caught up in patrolling the godliness gates that we lose sight of Christ's love for forgiven sinners. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus here. Jesus commends hard work and ministry. He commends maintaining faithful biblical teaching. But in doing so, we mustn't forget what it's all about. We mustn't lose our love for Jesus. We mustn't lose our joy for the gospel and faith in Jesus, which will then express itself in love and gentleness towards others. When Jesus doesn't take first place in our lives anymore, so many other things will creep in. And when that happens, so often we just move on and do nothing about it. Don't let that happen. Have you forgotten or are you forgetting your first love? See, there are two sides to love here that we see. On the one hand, we can love through truth and discipline and saying the hard things when they need to be said. It's not loving if I tolerate and say to my son Timothy, it's okay to keep hitting your sister on the head. It's not loving to let a workmate keep bullying everyone else and just say, oh, that's just who he is. And it's not loving to let my friends think it's okay to turn away from Jesus and then just leave it at that. Love holds to the truth and says the hard things when they need to be said. But on the other side of love, there's compassion, patience, and grace. It's not loving if I tell my son Timothy off for continuing to hit his sister on the head, but then completely ignore the fact 
that he's just a toddler at this stage. It's not loving if I confront the workplace bully only by becoming a bully myself. And it's not loving to think I can argue my friends into the kingdom of heaven. And we can take either of these sides of love too far, can't we? The Ephesians, they were sharp when it came to the truth. They could spot a false teacher a mile off, they'd call them out, and they didn't compromise on saying the hard things. But what does Jesus say to them? You've lost your love. You're in danger of going to the dark side of truth, the side that steamrolls people over in pursuit of getting things right. I recently did a Myers-Briggs personality test for a leadership development program that I'm doing. And for anyone who knows what that is, I'm an ESTJ. But if you don't, one of my tendencies, apparently, is to stick closely to the rules. I like a tidy schedule. I like to stick to time. And there are some real benefits to this. But there's a dark side as well. See, if you've got to peek into how Angela and I, my wife Angela and I, resolve arguments, you'd know that means not very loving. You know, I make sure all the facts are right, I call out every little detail, and I forget the person behind the action. We mustn't become a church, we mustn't become a people who know lots, know the truth, know the facts, but doesn't love. This was the big problem for the Ephesians. They were a church who knows, but didn't love. Now, if that's the danger for the Ephesians, the church in Pergamum basically had the complete opposite problem. They were a church that loves, but they didn't know. In my final year of high school, you know, we had a school ball um, after party, uh, and a group of friends uh, at the time were starting to get uh, drinking into alcohol. So that was my circle of friends. We had a school ball after party, and you know, they, were, they, were, they were getting really into drinking. Now, I grew up being told, you know, not to get in that stuff, stay away, be a good boy, you know, all that. And to be honest, I had, I had tried alcohol before. I didn't really like it anyway, so no problem, right? But I remember at the school ball after party, everyone was at a table, we were all around a table, and they poured a shot of absinthe, which is apparently like 70% alcohol. Uh, no one had taken the shot yet, and everyone knew I didn't drink. And so for some reason, that meant everyone started chanting my name. Ming, Ming, <laughs> Ming, Ming. And so I took the shot. And apparently I just crashed for the rest of the night on a bed, and I don't fully remember what happened. Uh, but I woke up on the bed, so I trust my mates. <laughs> Peer pressure can make us do crazy things, can't it? And it's not just kids or teenagers who are affected, but it's us adults as well. No matter who you are, everyone wants to feel like they belong. You know, a recent study I, I looked up on the internet, so I'm sure it's trustworthy, it was from some reputable place. The most common form of peer pressure, apparently, is in our advertisements and TV programs. You know, our media promotes the idea of what it means to be normal. Now, how should we look? What we should be doing? And what is and isn't acceptable? The culture around us influences our decisions. And this cultural influence doesn't just happen on a personal level. What we see is that it happens for whole churches as well. Churches feel the pressure to fit in with the world around them and be relevant. The big question we need to ask is, how do we be a church that follows Jesus and doesn't just succumb to cultural pressures? 
How do we be a church that is in the world, but not of the world? Think of it like a boat. A boat is designed to be in the water, but as soon as water starts getting into the boat, we're in trouble. And in the same way, Christians need to be in the world, but we can't just retreat into our Christian bubble. But at the same time, Christians aren't of the world aren't of the world. We can't just retreat to our Christian bubble. And so we need to be on guard, all right? We need to be on guard against the pressures to conform to the culture around us. Jesus' letter to, the per- to Pergamum is all about a church that had started to take on water and given to the peer pressure around him. So have a look with me at verse 12. It's up on the screen. Write to the church, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp double-edged sword, I know where you live where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death among you, where Satan lives. Now I know what some of you might be thinking. That opening line, I know where you live. (laughs) Sounds pretty creepy. But what it's getting at isn't the geographical location of Pergamum, but that Jesus knows the moral situation of Pergamum. See, Pergamum was a really hard place to be a Christian. Jesus actually describes the city as where Satan has his throne. Now, why do you think Pergamum was such a focal point of Satan's attention? Well, Pergamum was a really wealthy city that functioned as the political capital of the region. This meant all the Roman officials and all the soldiers were based in Pergamum. And so there was a civil commitment to worship the Roman emperor and pagan Greek gods. Failure to worship the emperor was actually punishable by death. This meant the Christians in Pergamum were under immense pressure, both socially and economically. And so Jesus describes this place as the throne of Satan. You know, I think this tells us something really important about who Satan is and how he works. See, there wasn't anything particularly satanic about Pergamum. And it's not like they were waving Satan flags all over the place or they built a temple in the name of Satan. But here's the thing. Satan is pleased whenever people are worshipping anything else other than the God made known in Jesus Christ. Satan is pleased and in a sense present where God is not honored. So let me ask, where is your attention? What fills your mind? Where are you spending your time, talents, and treasure? Are they things that honor God, or are they things that Satan would be pleased with? And this isn't just with obvious big sins. C.S. Lewis once said, murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick in drawing you away from God. Now, I want to briefly highlight what the church in Pergamum were praised for. They were commended for clinging on to their faith in a context that was so hostile to be, to, to be a Christian. Even when one of their own, Antipas, was put to death, they did not renounce their faith. They clung to Jesus. And you can actually do a bit of historical digging to learn a bit more about this guy, Antipas. He was the bishop in Pergamum, and he was horribly roasted alive in a bronze bull. But that's not what he's remembered for. More importantly, Jesus described Antipas 
as the faithful witness. You know, there's only one other person in the Bible who's described as a faithful witness. Jesus himself. What a privilege for Jesus to share his title with another, and that's what Antipas will be remembered for. See, Jesus knows the suffering of his people. He knows their situation. He knows what they're going through, even if nobody does. Now, a friend might be able to offer you words of comfort. They might even be able to say, I've experienced that before as well. But no one can ever know the details of what you're going through. No one can really know the depths of your suffering. But Jesus says, I know. And at the cross of Christ, he bore the greatest suffering for our sake. He endured it all, and he could empathize. But even more than that, he knows you. He knows every hair on your head, every pang on your heartbeat, every, even the suffering that you don't even know how to explain. He can understand that. Jesus says, I know. And that's the encouragement that Jesus has to give to the Pergamum, Pergamum church. But it's not all good news for them, sadly. So have a look with me at verse 14. It says this, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now there's two problems I want to unpack here. The first is that there were a group in the church who were being led astray by committing sexual sin and idolatry. They were being led away by false teaching. But even more than that, this is the second thing, the church were tolerating it, or at least turning a blind eye to it. Now, in terms of who the individual false teachers are, it's actually a bit hard to tell. In fact, it's kind of hard to tell if Jesus was even using their real names. See, where have you come across the name Balaam before? Well, he's actually one of the darkest characters in the Old Testament. And what we find is Jesus isn't so concerned with a specific false teacher or a specific set of doctrines to watch out for. His concern is a type of teaching. All right, to get what I mean, we actually need to jump back to Numbers 21 to 25, where we see what actually happened with this Balaam and Balak character. But to cut a long story short, and I encourage you to read those two chapters, Numbers 21 to 25, over the week, this guy Balak, he hires Balaam to curse God's people Israel, right? And after many failed attempts, Balak just gets frustrated, and so he decides to try a different tactic. So Balaam says to Balak, look, if you really want to ruin Israel, if you really want to ruin God's people, here's what you need to do. Take some of your most beautiful women and send them among the Israelites and just get them to seduce the men of Israel. If you do them, you'll watch, them, watch the men just melt. And what happens in Numbers 25, we see the men of Israel being seduced and indulging themselves in sexual immorality, and these women inviting the men to sacrifice to their, to their gods. Now, here's the thing that we learn from all that. The teaching of Balaam is a type of teaching that seeks to tempt God's people away by luring them into sin. See, one of the most effective ways to ruin God's people is to entice them to sin. And that's the reason why it's so effective. 
It's subtle. It's in our culture. It's that subtle peer pressure that we don't even realize. It's caught, not taught. Now, I'm not sure how many of us subscribe to Disney+. Plus. Now, I'm a massive fan of Disney movies. I love Aladdin. I love Lion King. I love Mulan and Hercules. But I think Disney is pretty scary because they have this great power over our society. See, what makes them scary is that their messages aren't explicit. They're not shoving teaching down our throat, but they're influencing us through their stories. This is the same tactic that made the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans so effective. Their teaching was caught, not taught. And so the question isn't, am I tempted to compromise? The real question we need to be asking is, where am I being tempted to compromise? So let me give you four key areas to press in on. Your profession, your property, your pleasure, your partner. Profession, property, pleasure, partner. Where are you being tempted? Now, I won't go into all of those now. Definitely keep chatting to each other and press in on these areas. Uh, but see, here's the hard thing. We have the same homes, the same careers. We go to the same holidays and pursue the same pleasures as the world around us. And it's not that these things are necessarily and inherently evil in and of themselves. They're good things from God that we ought to be thankful for. But we need to ask ourselves, are we taken on water? Do we just have a Christian veneer and we've actually fallen into the trap of our culture? Or does the gospel permeate every area of our life down to its roots? Now, it wasn't just false teaching that was the problem. It's also that the church in Pergamum tolerated it. So how did this happen? It comes from a desire to love and include others. See, while Ephesus was sharp on the truth but lost their love, Pergamum was sharp on love but lost their truth. They tolerated falsehood. Now, I'm a massive people pleaser. I desperately want people to say yes to Jesus and join the family. I'm keen to see people get on board with what we're doing here at UniChurch. But if I'm honest, I can find myself loosening on the truth in my conversations just to see that happen. Yeah, I have good intentions. I love seeing these people come on board, but I can't be loosening up on the truth. See, it's so hard to speak the truth to your mate, this person you care about so much, but know that they will probably leave church, say no to Jesus, maybe even end the friendship over it. But I want to say, it's even more unloving to withhold the truth from them. The Christians in Pergamon probably had good intentions with their tolerance and inclusion. But good intentions will come up empty if they're without truth. We need to keep reminding each other to care more about the friend than just the friendship. We need to keep growing in our love of the truth so we can recognize when we're slipping away. This was the big, big problem for the church in Pergamum. It wasn't just that the city they lived in was hostile to Jesus. It wasn't even the fact that false teaching was present in the city. It was that false teaching had entered the church and they accepted it. They loved, 
but ironically, didn't love the truth enough to commit single-minded devotion to Jesus. We mustn't be a church that accepts anything and everything, but doesn't have the hard conversations and ultimately dishonors the one, our first love, Jesus. All right, there's a lot more I could say on these passages, and there's lots of stuff I didn't get into, so keep chatting with one another over dinner in your connect groups over the week. But I want to end with the question, would Jesus write a similar letter to us as a church? Would he say that we're a church that, that knows lots, has a lot of head, but loves little? Or would he say that we're a church that, that loves lots, but knows very little? Maybe it's a bit of both. Maybe some of our world's culture has started to creep in. Where in your life has God's Spirit by His Word prompted you? Whatever it is, Jesus ends both letters, every letter the same way. He says, repent. Stop going the wrong way. Whether that's to the dark side of the truth where you just steamroll people over, or to the dark side of love where you accept anything and everything and become a boat full of water. Now you might be here, you're not really a part of church, you're not yet a Christian. You might be thinking, I just spent the last 30 minutes hearing about a talk about church, about what to do, what not to do. What has this got to do with me? The warnings here are given even to those who don't yet trust in Jesus. See, Jesus isn't just head over the churches. He's the ruler of the whole universe. And he's laid down his life so we can have life. So when he says repent, he's calling all of us, whether we trust in Jesus or not yet, to stop walking away from life and turn back to him and find true love and, 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 true love and truth. So let's come to Jesus. Let's draw near to him and experience joy and life. Let's pray that as Jesus looks at our lives, looks at our church family, he would see a people who both love and know the truth. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we do confess the times where we've slipped up, we've, we've been all head and no heart, or we've been all heart and no head. Uh, we thank you that you have revealed the dangers on both sides tonight. And we pray that we might cling closely to your son, Jesus, cling closely to the truth that he holds out and cling closely to the love that we find in him. We pray that you might help us to do that through one another and through your word. And we ask for help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.